if you have been a if you've been watching or listening to uh, the fully equipped podcast, uh, you're going to find some of this stuff today very familiar if you've listened to the last two episodes uh, of the fully equipped podcast. Now available on the fully equipped media YouTube channel, so we're no longer on Antioch West YouTube. Um, you can find the link on Antioch West YouTube. However, we have started a new fully equipped media channel. Uh, and uh, that's where the podcast is available. We're going to be doing some other things on that channel as well, not just podcasts, but right now that's what's up there. Um, and uh, we have a couple of special guests lined up here in the next couple of uh, weeks, uh, months, and uh, to have on the podcast, trying to uh, get all of those arrangements now. And I know you're going to want to listen to that. But if you've listened to the last couple ones, you're going to find some of this familiar. But I really uh, was led of the Lord today to to – to take some of those principles that we've been talking about on the podcast and talk about them here today because I think they're, they're, they're of utmost importance uh, that we understand these things. Um, because if we're not, if, if, we don't, if we don't understand the principles of God, then we can't get in alignment with God, and therefore we're going to be working against him instead of working with him. And so it's important for us to understand how God operates, how God thinks. Now, God changes his application in our lives because we're all different, but his principles never change. In fact, the Bible is very clear. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even though application in God may change, he doesn't change. So if we understand his principles, his thinking, which we have a whole book called the Bible that gives us insight into how God thinks. We gives us insight into the principles by which God uh, uh, operates. That's why the Bible is so powerful because it's not a book based in uh, application to a period of time, but it's a, ba- a book based in the principles and the character of who God is and the nature of God. So if we understand God's nature, God's character, God's principles, then we can, we can begin to understand that even though we're living in the 21st century, even though uh, it's been 2,000 years since the last uh, ink dried on the last piece of parchment that we call the Bible, that the, the, the things in the Bible are still applicable to us today, even though our world has changed. And we've got all kinds of different things now that we have that they didn't have. We have, my goodness, we've got AI. I mean, AI is completely... Uh, changing the world every day. We've got so much of that that's going on. Um, But the principles of God are the same because God doesn't change. So if we can, for just a moment, I'm going to read a scripture. I guarantee you, outside of probably um, the Lord's Prayer, I would say outside of the Lord's Prayer, this may be the most quotable scripture in the Bible. Maybe you could throw John 3.16 in there. That's another one that a lot of people know uh, the Lord's Prayer is probably at the top. Uh, John three sixteen may be number two, but I would say that Psalms twenty three, at least the beginning parts of Psalms twenty three, are uh, probably up there as far as the verses that most of us, if we can't quote them, we can get pretty close. And most people, even some non uh, non uh, um, believers and those who are not. Uh, Christians or professed Christians can at least or have familiar with Psalms 23. So I want to read that to you. I'm not going to read the entirety of Psalms 23, but I want to read it to you because there's something in Psalms 23 that's 
that we often miss that's of huge importance uh, to what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes today. Psalms 23, verse 1, you know it, but I'll read it anyways. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I won't go through the rest, but I want to stop there because verse 3 to me has a key wording in there. And that is he restores, restores my soul. Now, I've talked about this here uh, several times. I actually made a YouTube video on it on Tuesday Talks. I've taught it here on Sunday mornings as well. I've used the whiteboard for this one as well. But uh, the, the Hebrew word, now if you don't know this, some, some do, some don't. The Bible um, was not originally written in English. It was actually originally written in Hebrew for our what we call the Old Testament, which are the first 39 books of the Bible. The second half, which is we call the New Testament, which is the other 27 books, totaling 66. But the first 39 books was written in Hebrew. The other 27 books were written mostly in Greek. Now, this is important for us to know this because the, the copy that you have in your hand or on your phone is a translation of what was the original text. Now, this is important for several reasons because there are some things, and I'm not going to get too deep into this, but there are some times where in an attempt to translate a word from one language to another, the true meaning of that word in our language doesn't hold the same weight as it does in another language. I've, I've experienced this myself when I have been in other countries speaking um, to crowds or to churches, and I had to use an interpreter. I'm saying things in English, and I'm, I don't speak. I've, had, I've, I've spoken in uh, Russian. I've had French, uh, Spanish, uh, Norwegian, uh, German. Uh, let's see if I can think off the top of my head how many other I know there's a few other ones in there. A couple of languages in Africa that I don't even know what they were called. Um, so I've had several times where this has been uh, been the case. I had one time in particular where they actually had a French and Spanish. So I spoke, and then it was translated in Spanish and translated in French. So it'd be like, hello, how are you doing? And then Spanish, hello, how are you doing? And then French, hello, how are you doing? So like a five-minute sermon turns into two hours because it has to be translated multiple times. I did see one time in, a, in a, 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 a place in Africa where I believe there were six different translations being spoken uh, because there was that many different tribes that were represented in this crowd. And so when the, the person speaking said something in English, it had to be translated six different times. So when you do that, you know that as a person, I'm speaking English. I've got to trust that the translator is going to somehow make he he's he if he's not going to get a translation of me word by word, he's going to get the gist of what I'm saying. And he may have to tweak certain things in order to understand, because a good translator is not only translating the words, but he's trying to translate the meaning and the weight behind it. What I was in again, making a point here not to just ramble on. I was in um, the country of. Uh, Kyrgyzstan at one point, and uh, we had a a one of the best translators I've ever had. He was he trans he was a, a highly educated man, and uh, he was we, in Kyrgyzstan. You get translated into Russian, and 
this guy was absolutely brilliant. And we talked a little bit about it. He, he discussed his method. In fact, he was not just a translation for like for churches, but he did translations for for the government, for politicians. He, he did. He was a he was a a, a a professional translator. And so I remember one time we were between sessions and I was had a chance to just chat with him. He spoke perfect English. He spoke Russian. He actually spoke a little bit of Hebrew. It was like four or five languages he spoke. And so I was talking with him uh, during the sessions and uh, between sessions. And I was asking him sort of just like when you're translating something and you're listening and then you're translating and how, how, how are, how's that working? I was just more curious uh, to, to things. I'm necessarily trying to, to learn how to do it because I can't speak any other language and speaking in tongues doesn't count. So uh, I didn't really understand. I, I was curious how in his mind, because he was so good at it, how does he break it down? And he said, you know, I've done it long enough where I can hear what's being said in English and I can translate the words, but more importantly, what I'm trying to do, and he says, you know, that's why when you're, he, and he gave me some tips. He said, listen, when, when you're speaking, Try to speak in full sentences. Try to speak with, you know, don't give me half a sentence and then another half because he said in that context, you might be giving me half a sentence and then give me the other half. And my attempt to translate that, I'm trying to translate more than words. So he said, if you could give me a full sentence. I was like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's really helpful. I appreciate that because, you know, when you're trying to help someone translate, you don't want to give them too much. So, you know, after a while, it's like, hello. You're like, hello, my name, my name. He's, you know, don't do that. Give me a full sentence. Because he said, listen, when I'm translating something, I don't want to just translate the words, but I also want to translate the, the, the context, the weight of what you're saying. And it really helped me. But it also helped me with understanding sometimes in the word of God, the, the translations that we receive sometimes don't carry the same weight. Now, I said all that to get into this. The Bible says there in Psalms 23, verse 3, that... He restores my soul. When I think of restoration, in my mind, I'm thinking of taking something old and making it look new or putting something back together again, putting it, you know, restoring. And yes, there is a part to that. But within this, the, the word there that we get the word restore is actually the Hebrew word shuv, which is to turn back. And this is huge because it's to turn back to what? What is God trying to restore? And this is a huge point. The whole point, where are we getting to today? What is God trying to restore? And whether or not you are walking with Jesus every day or you're brand new and this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this, know this, that God is trying to restore. God is trying to restore you. But restore you to what? Right? Oh, restore, to, restore you back to where you were a baby when you came out of your mother's womb. Actually, no. God's trying to go back further than that. Because when he says he restores the soul, what is he talking about? He's wanting to restore man back to man's original intent. What was man's original intent? Well, we find that in Genesis. In the beginning, when God created man. What did God create man to do? He created man to, with, with two intents with two specific purposes. Number one, he created man to be the expression of his image. Meaning, he created man to represent him, to be his image. In fact, there's within that scripture, it talks about us being 
image bearers, meaning literally we are to represent Christ. We are to represent who God is. We are to be a living example, just like, and it's very similar in its concept, but just like uh, still today they have it, but back then, especially in biblical times, ancient times, this was more prevalent, but they would create a God. And when they created a God, they would, they would carve an image, a idol, whether it's made of wood or stone or whatever it might be. And that would, that, they did that because they wanted to take the invisible God and put a physical representation on that God so that when people went into a temple, they weren't just staring at a blank canvas. They were actually staring at a piece of wood or a piece of stone. And they could, they could imagine that, you know, the goddess Diana or other, uh, my, all, my, uh, all my ancient gods uh, are coming up short in my brain. But they wanted to translate that into something physical. That's what God did with you and I. When he created us, he took the invisibility of God and fashioned man to be the image. That's why the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, he said, let us make man in our image. Let's make man in the image. Image of who? Image of God. Now, do I believe God looks like me? No, thank God. Do I believe God looks like you? No. We all are each individuals uniquely created. We are uniquely created down to the fingerprints on our hand. But what does it mean? It means that God wants us to represent him. He wants us to be his image, his, his image bearer. But the other thing that God did in the garden was he gave man dominion. This is huge. He gave man dominion and authority. Now, it wasn't man's dominion and it wasn't man's authority. It was God's delegated dominion and authority. He gave, God, he gave man. Now, we know the story, right? But let's rehash it. What did God do? And you've heard me talk about this before, but this is important. What did God do? He did all this, right? He creates this amazing place, this amazing um, paradise. And he gives them everything they could ever want and more. But then in the middle of that, he, he puts one single tree, one, not 50, not a forest, one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and says to them, do not eat from this tree. You can do whatever you want in this garden, but don't eat from this tree. That's it, one tree, just one. Now, to be honest with you, if I was probably running things, I wouldn't have put it in the middle. I may have put it way off to the side. I may have put it off to the side hidden in a canyon somewhere. Because why put it in the middle of the garden, right? I said this uh, in the podcast, but it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's equivalent to, uh, I think I used this illustration, so forgive me for using it again. But my son, um, if, if allowed to, Noah, Joel Wright would uh, live on a very limited diet of pizza, spaghetti, and candy. Ice cream probably thrown. My wife's here right now. Ice cream, she says, eh. It's mostly pizza, spaghetti, and candy. I mean, nibs, ropes. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Nibs, ropes, uh, uh, what were those things? What are those things? Pull-in peels. What are those? What are all those multicolor ones that are just like you know, licorice? What's the other ones that come in a packet? They're multicolor. They're like just look like glow, like fluorescent gook. He eats uh, literally. We can't go by a gas station without my man wanting to just say, "Can I get some candy? Can I get some candy?" 
And uh, so anyways, if, if that's the case, I don't even know what his favorite candy be. It would be a combination probably ropes or pull and peel would be his favorite candy. He does like – some of you would know this brand. He does like Wackenfuss, a licorice of all kinds. Some of you don't even know what that is. Um, that's a local thing for Marylanders, and some Marylanders don't even know what that is. But let's just say, which of those do you think – my wife's right here. What do you think would be his favorite of those? Pull and peel, walk and fuss, ropes. Which one is his favorite? Okay, she says ropes. I agree because usually ropes are the things he goes to. Ropes, I think, are made – they're just like – I don't even – just go in the gas station and ask for ropes. And not actually a real rope. That's what they're called. But that's like me going into Noah's room. This is kind of how my, my natural mind, and I'm going somewhere with this. Just bear with me. My natural mind thinks about this. It's like me going into Noah's room right now and putting ropes, a big box of ropes in the middle of his floor and then saying, Noah, don't eat these. It seems like it's unnecessary. It seems almost cruel because my natural mind says, you know what, don't even put them in there. Don't even buy them for him. Why, why torture the poor kid? Noah, here's a whole box of ropes. Don't eat them. He's an 11-year-old boy. I wouldn't, it, it seems like as a good parent, I wouldn't tempt my child by that. So it's sometimes kind of puzzling. God gives this entire garden and says this one tree which the middle of the, puts in the middle of the garden, you know what, don't eat it. But what really was going on here? What was the purpose of the tree? Why did God have to put the tree? Because let's go back to Noah. Because Noah is going through some stages, like we all do, of learning to be obedient, learning to listen. And more importantly, one of the things that we're working on him right now is to do things and listen when no one else is around to know that you're doing it. You do that because that's what you're supposed to do. You're obedient. Even if mom or dad are not there to see you're doing it, you should be obedient. So let's say, for example, I wanted to test whether or not Noah was willing to be obedient to my, to my, uh, to my uh, um, rules. Or Noah was going to be. Because let's say, because Noah has some things in his life that Noah likes to do. Noah likes to play uh, his PlayStation Noah plays baseball. Noah likes to go outside. Noah is a guy who likes stuff. My man, like my, my Noah is a, all he like. He likes to have a good time. As a parent, we've bought him that stuff. We've tried to give him. You know, he, he likes Legos. He likes PlayStation. Um, he enjoys that kind of stuff. So we purchased that for him. But those things that we've given to him are not are not needs, right? His needs as a child are we're supposed to clothe him. We make sure he has a roof over his head, has a bed to sleep on, and has food in his belly. And if he's sick, we make sure we take him to the... There's some basic needs. We make sure he gets a, he, he's getting an education, uh, 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 um, making sure that those things are... There's some needs within Noah that we make sure are common. Outside of that, we tell our kids, everything above that's a bonus, you don't need more than one pair of shoes. If you have more than one pair of shoes, you, it's a bonus. You don't need a whole wardrobe. If you've got more than, than what you need, it's a bonus. You don't need games and all this other stuff. If you got them, great. But you, we've given them to you because, number one, we love you, but also, two, 
We've given these to you because there are blessings that come with being a child in this family. And as much as we're able to bless you, we're going to bless you. However, those things come with some strings attached. And I'm sure, like every kid, we love what we get out of it, but we don't necessarily like what's attached. So we'll go back to Noah for a second. So let's just say Noah wants to, uh, Noah's got his little PlayStation there. If you don't know what PlayStation is, it can't help you out there. Most of you probably do. PlayStation, video game, and Noah wants to play. But let's say, for example, that we know as parents that PlayStation is a is is not a need. PlayStation is 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 a liberty we give to him to play. But we want to test his obedience. So now we put the box of ropes in the middle of the room. And we say to him, Noah, don't eat these. Don't eat them. Now, why are we doing this? We're doing this not to punish him or to tempt him. We're doing this because we as parents need a measuring stick to know, okay, is he going to be obedient? Is he going to be submitted? Is he going to, is he going to, to come under our authority as parents? And we need something to test that authority. So we're going to put this box in the middle of the room. And then we're going to walk out. We're not going to sit there and watch it. We're going to walk out. But he doesn't know that his mom has counted every package, every single piece of candy. She knows if there is one nibble taken off any candy. Because he's smart enough to try to pull one out, retape the package. He'll try it. But she knows. So now we walk out of the room. We come back a couple of days later. And now two things have happened. Number one, the box is untouched. He's been obedient. Now that he's been obedient, guess what? We as parents say, you know what? Because of your obedience, we're going to give you some more latitude. Because now we know we can trust you. And we know you're submitted. And we know that you're obedient to us. And we know that what we say you're going to do and we're going to follow. And we've, we've, we have these things in your life to make sure you know that. So we're going to give you more liberty. So now you know what? You can, you can play PlayStation for an extra few minutes or you can do other things, whatever it might be. I'm just using that. It's a silly example, but just using that. But let's say we come back and Noah has, has taken a bite. Not the whole box, not, not, the whole, not even a package, just a bite. What does that tell us as parents? Tells us his parents that there's some obedience things there, that he's not submitted. He's not, he's not listening. And when we walk away and we're not watching him, that he's doing things he shouldn't be doing. So what's that going to do for us? That means we're going to have to go and we're going to have to go, okay, listen, we love you. But if you're not going to be obedient and submitted to our authority, now we don't say that. It's a, I'm using that terminology because that's what it is. But we don't say... Son, you need to be submitted to your parents' authority, using that term. And he's not going to be submitted to our authority. We know we can't give him the liberty. So God puts this tree in the middle of the garden. Why? He gives this, puts this tree because he needed every day something that Adam and Eve could do to show him that, God, you are the Lord of our life. You're the Lord. That's why the Bible says, and I don't want to get into this, the Bible says, 
that if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. Peter said that in Acts chapter 2. It's repeated in Romans. If we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we shall be saved. Does that mean that confessing Jesus Christ as Lord is the only thing necessary? No. But in order to be saved, we first have to acknowledge that we need a Savior and we need a Lord. Because guess what? You are going to have somebody in your life is going to be in charge of you. You cannot be the most, the, 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 the most deceiving thing is that we are independent. That we make our own path. No, somebody's in charge. Somebody's in charge. Now you have a choice whose kingdom you're going to live in. God's kingdom, Satan's kingdom. But you're going to live in somebody's kingdom. As Christians, we want to live in his kingdom. As believers, I want to live in his kingdom. But to live in his kingdom, as I say, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And how do you know you have a king? You have a king because there's got to be something in your life you've got to have in your life that you're willing to every day show that he's the king and Lord of your life. So he puts this tree. Well, guess what man does? You know the story. Satan tempts, man loses. So with the fall of man, with Adam's sin, now God is restoring or has, is desiring to restore back what we lost in the garden. To restore the image that was marred by sin and also to restore the authority and dominion he gave to man. He gave to man. It wasn't man's authority and dominion. It was his authority. So he wants to restore the image and restore the authority. So how does he do that? He does that through the work of the cross, through Jesus Christ coming to this earth, dying being, uh, being, being crucified on the cross, being buried, and being resurrected. This is what happens. That's why the Bible says uh, in Corinthians, it talks about the fact that Jesus is the second Adam, meaning what the first Adam got us into, Jesus got us out of. What the first Adam did, bringing sin into, into this world, the second Adam, Jesus, did to get us free from sin. That's the beauty about this, right? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and resurrected. He won the victory that was lost in the garden. And it's through his sacrifice that you and I are able to live in dominion and authority over uh, sin in our life. Because truly... The gospel of the New Testament is rooted in this fact. It's rooted in the reality that Jesus set you and I free from the defilement of the flesh and self-righteousness of the flesh, but both come from the same tree. Now, let me share this with you. In the New Testament church, when, and if you don't know what the New Testament church is, we call the New Testament church, that was the church that began to grow right after Jesus. Jesus re was, was, was resurrected 40 days. He ascended into heaven. About, about 10 days later, they, we have what we call the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came and dwelled uh, and, and filled the, the, the individuals that were gathered together in an upper room. And we call this the birth of the church, the New Testament church. That's what you and I are a part of today. Here we are 2,000 years later. We're still a part of the same church as Peter and James and John and Paul and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So this New Testament church that began to blossom, because anytime man gets involved, things are always going to be a struggle. 
because man is man. Things haven't changed. Here we are 2,000 years later, man is man. But three different gospels started to come about in the New Testament church. I'm not going to spend all day on this. If you want more understanding of this and more teaching on this, it's available on the podcast. I'm not going to get into great depths of this today. This is sort of the cliff note version. But there are three gospels that started to happen. The first two gospels were really the ones that were trying to distort what God was trying to do. They were the gospels of legalism and the gospels of gospel liberalism. Now, I know liberalism nowadays has a different connotation because in the political world, you're a conservative, you're a liberal, you're a moderate. And I understand using the word liberal nowadays has a negative tone to some and some it's empowering, but I'm not using it in a political way. I'm using it in a term of the contrast between a legalist and a liberalist. And ultimately, it's this. And I'll give you the quick definition as I gave it on the podcast just to give you a different between the two. The gospel of legalism is this. Legalism is an attempt to earn salvation. At its core, legalism is an attempt to earn salvation by works, especially human works, meaning being a good person, doing everything right, making sure you never have one bad moment, one bad thought, because you know you're going to show God how good of a person you are. That's sort of the core value of legalism. Now, there's multiple ways legalism manifests itself, but legalism is done by that. But for the true Christian that is saved by grace, legalism is a little deeper than that. Here's this. Legalists are people who believe that salvation is by is by grace alone, but that sanctification, that's the process becoming more like Jesus Christ. Sanctification comes by their own efforts of trying hard to be a good Christian. Try hard. I'm going to try harder. And here's this. Legalists try to attend to push their own personal standards on everyone else. That is one of the telltale signs of a legalist is when they try to get everyone to live by the same standard they're living by. They confuse, now get this, they confuse obedience with trying to serve God in their own strength. And they are quick to judge other people's motives, thinking the worst of them and their intentions. And they demand that other people do things that they themselves would never do. And here's another thing a legalist does. They regard the sins of others more severe and grievous than their own. One of the things that legalists have is they are intrusive meddlers. Peter called them this, 1 Peter 4.15. He called them busybodies in other people's matters. Because why? They are blind to their own self-righteousness and they pride themselves on being clean on the outside without realizing that they are stained and flawed and defiled on the inside. And part of the thing that legalists do is they unwittingly bring a lot of pain and heartache to the lives of others. But they seem out of touch to this fact. Now, we hear that, we're like, well, I don't want anything to do with that. So we need to fix that. So what do we do? We go the opposite direction. And it becomes the gospel of liberalism. What does the gospel of liberalism look like? Usually liberalism is a reaction to the devastation 
that legalism brings on. So we see the devastation caused by liberalism. We, 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 uh, with legalism. So we decide we got to fix this. So we tend to go towards a liberalistic understanding. And liber- libertarians will call them that if we want to, uh, uh, call them, call them a, a, a less negative tone. Libertarians are people who live the way they want and have skirted the lordship of Christ and all that it means. They're apt to justify carnality by pulling the grace card, the I'm free in Christ card. And the biggest one is, and I went into this in detail on the podcast, the don't judge me card, which is of all the cards is the most foolish one to play. And in the liberal world, grace becomes a license to live in the flesh and silence your conscience, meaning you can just sort of chalk everything up with God's okay with it. God's okay with it. We're supposed to love and God's okay with everything becomes a free, free for all. And you liberal liberalists rationalize their thinking because they rationalize it by using things like, I think God's okay with it. God's cool with it. No matter the carnage it brings. You know, is God really, is God really against fornication? Uh, I don't think so anymore. God knows that we're just flesh, we're humans. Is God really against this? Is God really against that? I'm using just, you know, picking something out of the blue here. You know? So you sleep with someone that's not your husband or your wife. Is that really a big deal to God? I don't think it is that big deal anymore. It's not a big deal to God anymore. Come on, God, God wants us to love everybody. So you start to start to change because you know what? You know what? I don't want to be legalistic. And anytime you stand up for anything, you know what? We're supposed to abstain from these things. We're not supposed to do these things. Oh, you're being legalistic. Nope, that's legalism. Can't do that. Nope. Wait a minute. I'm going to give you a quick definition of the difference between a legalist and a liberalist. Here's this. Legalists want to add trees to the garden. A liberalist wants to cut down all the trees. So legalists say, you know what? One tree is not enough. We need a whole forest of trees. If one tree will keep us, then I know a whole forest of trees is going to make sure the difference. So legalists, we don't have one tree. We got 400. In fact, in the Bible, they had 619, I believe it was. 619. Trees. 619 trees. Maybe off by a second, and I think I think it's six hundred nineteen. I know some of you were probably yelling at the screen how many there were, but I believe how, how many how many laws? Let me look it up. In the Old Testament, was I uh, six hundred thirteen? I don't know where I got nineteen. I was in the teens. Okay, give me some give me some credit. I was close. I added six. I'm Pharisaical. I added six extra. Six hundred thirteen trees in the Old Testament. So we went from one tree to 613 trees, and it still didn't work. Man still found a way out. So legalists go, liberals, liberals go, nah, trees don't work. Cut all the trees down. Who needs trees? You know, if we didn't have trees, we would never sin. If we didn't have trees, we would never do anything wrong. So if we, trees are bad, cut them all down. Let's have no trees. And anytime you want to put a tree up because you want to show God that you're submitted to him, that you're willing to do 
separate yourself and follow after him and you put one tree in the garden, the liberals are over there with their, with their sandwich boards going, cut down the trees, cut down the trees. And the legalists are going, add more trees, add more trees. The trees aren't the problem. A problem is the heart. And the problem goes back to the third gospel, which is the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel that Paul preached. And that is the gospel is ultimately about lordship. He is the Lord, I'm not. He's the Savior, I'm not. He's God, I'm not. Bottom line, no, you don't have to make it more complicated than that. It's simple. He's God, I'm not. He's Lord, I'm not. He's Savior, I'm not. And with that, there comes some responsibility. He's going to test me and to tell me who's Lord of my life. And okay, God's Lord of your life. How do you know? Well, I know because there's no trees. I cut down all the trees because I want to show God that I'm the, he's the Lord of my life. So if there's no trees, I never do anything wrong. And therefore, God knows I'm a good person. Or on the other side, I, God is the Lord of my life because I got 613 trees and I haven't touched one of them. Bless God. Neither one of them work. So whether this is your first time or your 4,000th time, God wants to be your Lord, not so he can punish you, not so he can lord over you. But it's because ultimately this, his lordship leads to liberty. Lordship is the gateway to liberty in the spirit. Now, I don't have time to go into all this. I went into the podcast. Part one and part two goes into what that means. Because, again, go back to the go back to uh, the, the garden image. And dominion. Lordship establishes who he is and restores his image in our life because he is the one in charge of our life. Therefore, he is shaping and making us into his image. But with that comes dominion. And dominion is liberty in the spirit that we can not live bound by fear and torment. Depression, oppression, everything that comes against us in our life, we can have authority over. We don't have to be subject to the same spirit and spiritual atmosphere that this world is dealing with. Our world is filled with anxiety, fear, torment, emptiness, depression. All these are things that our world are dealing with. But we who have been bought By the blood of Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, called by his name and filled with his spirit, have been given the opportunity to have access to dominion over these things. But how do we get those things? We got to we get dominion because we are under his lordship. And therefore, because of his lordship, he can give us delegated authority. So right now, if you have depression, if you're dealing with fear or torment or confusion, or things that are clouding your mind, or these things that are happening in your life, you have no authority over them if you're not under the lordship of Christ. But under the lordship of Christ, you have authority over every demonic power that's out there. The Bible says he has not given us the spirit of fear. If there's fear in your life, you can have authority over that fear. How? Through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
You can rebuke that fear all you want. Fear, go away, go away, go away in Jesus' name. Just like that spirit looked at that group that day and said, you know, Peter we know, Paul we know. Who are you? They got authority, but you don't have authority, so we're not listening to you. Why? Because Peter, Paul were under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, they had authority. So for those of you that are out there that feel like, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to start speaking against this stuff and nothing's happening. You need to check your lordship meter. Are you under his lordship? Well, how do I know under lordship? I'm under lordship. How do you know that? If you've cut down all the trees, how do you know you're under lordship? And just because you have 613 trees and you haven't touched one of them doesn't mean you're under lordship either. Lordship leads to liberty. That's the ultimate part. Because here's the beauty about this, and I've told this before. But a man one day came, and he came to the court of the king. And many important people were there that day to see the king. Many rich people were there that day to see the king. And so... This man comes to the king and he says, King, I have something to present to you today. And he says, I've come to give you this, uh, this, this uh, carrot that I have grown out of my own field. It was the best carrot. He was growing a field of carrots. And this was the largest and healthiest carrot of all my carrots. And I was so proud of what my field had grown. I wanted to give it to you as the king. And so he presents this king with a carrot. Now, it wasn't just a carrot, because ultimately that carrot was a product of his time and effort that it went into cultivating that field, sowing the seed, making sure it was healthy so that that field could bring forth fruit. But of that fruit that it brought forth, he brought the best of the best of the best he had ever grown and gave it to the king. When the king saw this gift, the king was very touched by this gift. And he turns to the man and he says, because of the generosity of your gift, I have many fields that belong to me. I'm going to give you those fields for you and your family. And you can farm them and you can have all the profits and proceeds that come from whatever you grow in those fields. And the man was overwhelmed by this and he went on his way. And there were several men, including one rich man that day that was watching all of this happen. And so a few days later, he shows up and he says, oh, king, I've come with a gift. And the king says, OK, and he he brings in to the to the king's chambers this magnificent. Stallion black as night chiseled with muscles and just an absolute specimen of a horse. He said, oh, King, I want to give this to you. The king receives the stallion and says, thank you, and doesn't say another word. The man that gives this horse to the king stood there for a few moments, waiting for the response from the king. And after a few moments of silence, he begins to get more frustrated, more angry. And finally, after a few moments of silence and not hearing anything from the king, he finally just couldn't help himself. He gets frustrated and he blurts out, how can you do this? King says, what do you mean? He goes, 
How do you reject my gift? And the king said, I didn't reject your gift. I received your gift. Thank you. He said, but that's it? That's all I get is a thank you? He said, I was here a couple days ago, and this guy, this poor, no good, absolute peasant farmer walks in here, gives you a carrot, a carrot. And in return, you gave him all these fields. I brought you the best stallion in the kingdom, and you don't give me anything, nothing but a thank you. And the king said, you're right. You're right. And the guy said, I know I'm right. You need to fix this. The king said, no, I'm not giving you anything. And the guy said, how could you do this? And he said, simple. He said, he gave the carrot to me, but you gave the horse to yourself. Meaning he gave me the carrot, not for what he could get out of it, but because he wanted just to show me that he he, he loved me and wanted to give me something as his king to show his appreciation to me as a king. You gave me the stallion, not because I was the king. You gave me the stallion for what you could get out of it. So liberals, cut down on the trees. Legalists, I'm going to show you God. I'm going to give you the best horse, but you better give me something back in return. No. I don't obey because of what I get. I obey because he's my God, my Lord, and my King. And I want to walk with him and live, in, live under his lordship and submission to him every day. What gospel are you following today? Which of these gospels describes your life? Legalist, liberal, or lordship? And if I say lordship, then my question is, what tree do you have in your garden? What are the trees in your garden that God says, don't touch these trees? Not trees you planted. Notice Adam and Eve didn't plant a tree and say, God, we're going to plant this tree and dedicate it to you. No, God put the tree there. That's one thing about legalists. We plant trees as legalists, but Lordship, God's the one planting the trees. God will tell you what needs to be your tree, but everybody should have some trees in your life that God plants in the middle of your life and says, don't touch, don't, don't eat from these trees. Why? Because every day I want you to show me that I'm your Lord. I'm your King more than your savior. You see a savior, I I get something out of him being a savior, but lordship is just because I want to show him that he means more to me than anything. So what trees have God planted in your life? What trees have God planted in your life that you plucked up? Said, God, I know, I, I don't think we need these trees anymore. Or what tree had God planted in your life that now you've planted so many of your own trees that you can't even see the tree God planted? And you're wondering why there's no fruit from all the trees you planted because you planted them. God didn't plant them. So lordship, liberty, and liberalism, which gospel do you prescribe to? Which gospel are you living out? Because whatever gospel you're living by is the fruit you're going to get. Liberal, legalist lead, leads to a, really a life of self-righteousness, pain, stress, pressure. Liberalism It leads to a life of defilement, deception. It feels good. It looks good, but ultimately leads to a road of destruction. But lordship is a life that leads to liberty in the spirit. It's a life that leads to dominion and authority over my life. In my life and through my life, because I'm living into his kingdom, because he's my king. And therefore, I can live in his kingdom. Father, I pray right now in Jesus name that you.
would open up our hearts, each one of us, and reveal to us today what you're speaking to us. And for those that are listening today with a hungry heart, that you would bring us back to the fundamentals of who you are, that we would be, we would walk in your image, but also we would walk in your lordship, that we can walk in dominion. And if we have tended too far to the legalist side, that you would tell us what trees need to be cut down today so that we could only have the trees that you planted. And if we are tended to more a liberal side where we've cut down all the trees, God, tell us, show us the trees that you want to plant back in our life. What are the trees that you're planting? In Jesus' name, Lord, I give all this to you today. Submit all this to you today. In Jesus' name, speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name.